Desideratum is a Latin word, meaning things that are desired as essential. The Desideratum podcast celebrates the art of telling and the journey of listening to stories with narrator Teresa Bakken and her author, artist, and wordsmith, Friends. Episode 11, Mercy. Joseph Walker is an Edgar-nominated author. The Edgar Allan Poe Award is presented every year by the Mystery Writers of America, honoring the best in American mystery fiction. Joe's forte is short story. His featured story today is from a clever anthology called Peace, Love, and Crime, crime stories inspired by songs of the 60s. Joe used the Roy Orbison song, Pretty Woman, as inspiration. But, as you'll hear, the story of Mercy has an unexpected twist. In a time where we are experiencing so much through our screens, when we feel like we are missing authentic, vibrant experiences, I really like what Joe says about what reading and writing provides. You know, I love going to concerts. I love traveling. And I haven't got to do any of that in like 14 months. But reading can provide that sense of having an experience outside of yourself. And it sounds idealistic to say that, but I really think it's true. And what I'm fortunate enough to realize, and maybe some people don't, is that writing works the same way. I mean, when I'm writing a story, once I'm really engaged in, you know, the details, you know, you can spend 10, 15, 20 minutes looking at, you know, tinkering with one sentence. You're completely invested in that world and constructing it. And it is, you know, it's easy to dismiss it as escapism, but there's a lot to escape at the moment. And, you know, there's a value to that, to being able to get outside of your immediate experience. I didn't really start writing fiction in a serious way until I was in my 40s. And I guess what I'd say to anybody who's even thinking that they might want to do it is just do it. You know, you're eventually going to be whatever it is, 50 or 60 years old. Anyway, you can either be 50 years old with, you know, 10 published stories or 50 years old still thinking, well, I'd like to write someday. Just do it. We can use all the books and stories we can get, I think. Yes, and everybody has their own unique voice, right? Like they're everybody has their own perspective and different voice. I there's a very valid argument to be made that you know uh, you should write from your own perspective or, or your own identity, mm. and that there's you know authority in that, and that you shouldn't try to speak for other people. But then on the other hand, I think. One of the things that makes any form of art, including writing, meaningful is the idea of empathy, that it allows you to see the world from somebody else's perspective, which is something the world could certainly use more of right now. Yeah. You know, what do you think are some essential things? Like, what's essential to you? Um, books, 
first and primarily, and and I actually do mean books for the most part. I mean, I have nothing against e-readers. I use them sometimes when I travel, but I like the feel of a book, and I like you know looking at them on the shelf. Um, time, <laughs> because. I obviously have a day job. I have a few day jobs. I teach, you know, for uh, online classes for a couple of different colleges. Time to write is precious and must be fought for and rigorously maintained. So time is essential. What's been essential to me over the last few years as I've written more and more has been the society of writers, which has been almost entirely online, obviously, for the last little while here. But, you know, connecting with other writers through email or Facebook or uh, groups like, you know, for anybody listening to this who is interested in short mysteries, whether writing or reading, Short Mystery Fiction Society is a great thing that you should look into, and it's free, and it's a great bunch of people. Writing feels like a very solitary thing, and it is a very solitary thing when it's happening. But, you know, literary people, writers and readers, are also very supportive of each other. I, I think I'll settle for that list. Books and time to write and people to talk about writing with. Mercy. Before our father set it on fire, my big brother Stevie amassed what was possibly the largest collection of 45 singles in our town. He started buying them when he was seven. By the time he was 12, he was nearly obsessive, funneling the money from a paper route and his grudgingly tendered allowance directly to the local record shop. When he was 15, he scrounged scrap wood from around the neighborhood and built shelves of his own design to hold the hundreds he'd collected and lovingly maintained, allowing me, his worshipful little sister, to touch or play them only in his presence. At 16, he brought home Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever on the flip side and spent one blissful Saturday listening to the two songs over and over again. At 18, his number came up in the draft lottery. I sat on his bed and watched him pack. By then, we'd started to hear about boys who ran off to Canada rather than risk Vietnam. I knew Stevie wouldn't. But watching his slender fingers folding shirts, I was heartsick at the thought of him in uniform. To distract me, I think... He made me promise I would take care of the records while he was gone. He said I could choose one of them to have as my own, as payment for being their guardian. He probably expected me to pick one of the new songs, a mind trip from the Beatles or a grinder from the Stones. I ran my fingers along the alphabetized rows, letting the corners of the paper sleeves rustle under my nails. When I chose... It was a record he'd had for more than five years, one of the first ones I remembered loving. I handed it to him shyly. Monument 851, he read. Oh, Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison and the Candy Men. B-side, 
Yo te ama Maria. He looked at me. How come? I like the way he says mercy at the end of the first verse. As I said the word, I tried, without much success, to imitate Orbison's teasing delivery, the playful lasciviousness layered over something that wasn't play, something I didn't yet understand. And then the growl after the second verse. I didn't even try to replicate that. Stevie laughed. He picked up a pen and turned the record over. He had written his name on the back of the sleeve of every single in his collection. In later years, when I worked in a record store myself, I learned this reduces their value. I don't think Stevie would have cared about that if he'd known. He didn't want the records for money. He wanted the records for the records. On the backside of Oh Pretty Woman, he wrote, under his name, traded to Lila Benson for services rendered. He signed and dated it, and handed it to me, grinning. Five months later, I came home from school and saw the telegram from the army on the kitchen table. Dazed, I walked to the window and saw our father in the backyard. He had stacked Stevie's records in a pile and poured the gasoline from the shed over them, and now he stood there while they burned, not even seeming to watch as the sleeves darkened, came apart, and drifted away, black scraps edged with fading red embers. For years, I tried to feel some sympathy for my father. He was widowed when I was born, left alone with an infant daughter and a two-year-old son. It must have been hard, in ways beyond my comprehension. I couldn't use it to explain or justify, though, the ease and speed with which he reached for his belt, or the feeling of the back of his hand across my face. It couldn't undo the jolts of pain or erase the ugly purple welts everyone at school looked away from. Stevie intervened when he could, often accepting bruises meant for me. After Stevie was killed, my father's cold rage filled the house, seeking a target finding one, as often as not, in his strange, quiet daughter. It grew all the stronger as he started to suspect what I'd discovered for myself years earlier. My complete disinterest in the boys on the football team. My not-quite-casual-enough ogling of Mary Ann on Gilligan's Island and Goldie Hawn on Laugh-In. There would be no strapping, beer-guzzling son-in-law to take me off his hands. I hid the Orbison single, the last remnant of Stevie's collection, under a floorboard in my closet, alongside the lurid paperbacks about fallen women, shoplifted from the book emporium. I started spending as much time as I could manage any place else but the house where I'd grown up. On a good day, I didn't have to see my father at all. A couple of years after Stevie died, I was out of high school and working on being out of the house for good. I clerked part-time behind the counter at Music's Last Stand, the record store, where they remembered me as the little sister of their all-time best customer. I crashed on friends' couches when I could, 
slept at home when I had to, took a couple of classes at the community college, and spent a lot of time in the town square, hanging around in what was half a homeless camp and half a permanent protest against the war. There was a lot of pot, a little bit of LSD, and always music. But we didn't think of ourselves as hippies. Altamont had happened by then. Manson had happened. We had lurched into the 70s. It felt like the hippie thing was over. But we still had Nixon, and we still had the war. And we sensed it was still our duty to hold up the signs and chant once in a while. A lot of towns would have run us out. But the police chief had lost his youngest son during Tet. As long as we didn't panhandle or hassle people going about their business, he let us be. One May morning, I was perched on the low wall circling the square. I hadn't been home in a couple of weeks. I'd saved a little bit of money, and I was wondering if I could manage the rent on my own apartment and who to ask to be my roommate. I stopped thinking about all of that when a woman I'd never seen before walked around the corner. I forgot to breathe. The world reoriented itself around her, like loose playing cards returning to order as you tap them against the table, edges all lined up. In that instant, I understood everything about Roy Orbison's growl. Her short, jet-black hair swept up into an Elvis pompadour. She wore a leather jacket over a white T-shirt and tight jeans. Her eyes, hidden behind sunglasses, blacker than Spiru Agnew's soul. She carried no purse, wore no jewelry, but her mouth was outlined with neon red lipstick. One corner turned up in the barest hint of a smile. Her clothes clung to her in a way that made Goldie Hawn drop clean out of my mind. But it was her walk that slayed me. Smooth and confident, moving fast while barely seeming to move at all. A guy would have said she walked like she owned the place, and he would have said it with a bit of a sneer. But that wasn't it. She didn't walk like she had a claim on the world. She walked like it had no claim on her. I had ten seconds to look at her after she rounded the corner and before she was past me. I didn't turn my head, because I didn't want to watch her disappear around another corner. I wanted to save her, whole in my mind, always coming toward me. I closed my eyes, and a voice spoke right at my elbow. Hey, pretty girl, it said. It was her. The corner of her lip had lifted a little more, and her head was tilted. I had the feeling she knew everything I'd just been thinking, and I felt my face flush. You look like you know what's what, she said. Where can I get a good breakfast around here? I had to swallow a couple of times before I could answer. McCoy's diner, I said. A couple of blocks. Cool, she said. You want to come have breakfast with me? 
Yes, I managed. I had just enough dignity not to add, please. I stood up and nodded in the direction she'd been going. It's this way. Lead on, she said. We started down the sidewalk together, my heart hammering. I felt like an oaf next to her. I had on a monkey's T-shirt I pretended to wear ironically, and a flowered skirt that already seemed like some kind of costume, a pretentious bit of Woodstock play-acting. I tried desperately to think of something to say that wouldn't make me seem like the clueless dolt I was. I couldn't come up with anything. We covered a block in silence, my humiliation growing with every step. Halfway to the diner, we were passing the mouth of an alley when she put her hand on my elbow and pulled me into the opening. She spun me up against the brick wall and put her forearm against the wall next to my head and leaned toward me. Her right hand slipped casually under the hem of my T-shirt, and there was the electric touch of her warm fingers against the bare skin of my side. "'What's your name?' she asked. "'Lila,' I got out. "'Lila,' she said. "'I don't want coffee on my breath the first time I kiss you.' It was slow and sweet and warm, and when it was over, she pulled back, tipping the dark glasses down, and for the first time... I saw her blue eyes. My name's Mercy, she said. Mercy had a green VW bug she'd been driving around the country for two years, working odd jobs and waitressing, moving on whenever she wanted. She had a set of tools to keep the bug running and a switchblade knife to keep overly helpful men at bay. She had a rock she'd picked up on the beach at Key West that she worried with her thumb when she was thinking. She had a dream of settling down and running a little bookstore somewhere in Arizona. She had an atlas she hardly ever looked at, a box full of Green Lantern comic books she reread constantly, and parents in New York City who had made it clear they never wanted to see her again. I didn't learn all this at that first breakfast. I learned it, and much more, over the course of the week we spent together, starting right then. I had to work a shift at Music's Last Stand, so she sat on a stool next to mine behind the counter, swinging her legs and teasing the customers, one hand resting on my thigh. When the shift was over, I took her to the back room of the house where I was crashing, I won't talk about that. There are moments that are only for the people who are in them. Mercy took her time revealing herself to me, sharing her stories. I took my time, too. It was five days before I told her about Stevie. I thought I had cried all the tears I had for him. But telling Mercy made it new and raw again and she held me, as I found there were a lot more. When I was all cried out, we held hands, 
lying on our backs and looking up into the sky. It was the wee hours of the morning, and we were on the roof of Music's Last Stand in a big sleeping bag she kept in the bug. She liked being under the stars, even though we couldn't see very many of them with the town's lights in the way. It's why she wanted to end up in Arizona. Out there, she said, there were hardly any lights at all, and you could see the whole Milky Way, spread out just for you. So, the record's still there, she said, after a time, hidden in your old closet. Yes, I said. When I have my own place where it can be safe, I'll go get it. I don't want to carry it around. It's all I have of him. Well, she said, we'd better go get it soon. I took a moment to savor the we, and then looked at her silhouette in the darkness. Why? I'm about ready to move on, she said, and you can't leave it behind. You want me to come with you? I didn't know how to think a thought that good. Mercy laughed. Oh, she said, pretty woman. And she rolled and reached for me. We went to the house two days later, at a time I was pretty sure my father would be at work. He was a warehouse foreman, and his shifts sometimes got moved around, but early afternoons had generally been a safe time to be at the house, even back before Stevie left. I thought the house looked smaller than I remembered, shabbier. As far as I was concerned, the place was already receding into my past. The inside was a mess. I'd given up cleaning for him months ago, and there was a smell I didn't remember. A combination of dirty laundry, empty beer cans, and full trash cans. I opened a window to get some air circulating and led Mercy to the back of the house, resisting the urge to hurry. I wasn't trespassing. This was my home, too, and if this was going to be my last time in it, I wasn't going to sneak. My room felt hollow, staged, and I realized it had been a long time since anyone had really lived there. It was like a museum exhibit of what a girl's room might have looked like in an unimaginable past. Mercy drifted along, looking at old-school portraits and sketches from my high school art class. I could tell she sensed it, too. I remembered a cheap suitcase I'd had for sleepovers in grade school, still under the bed. I'll get the record, I told Mercy. Will you pack some clothes? I showed her the drawers where she would find things that still fit. In the closet, I knelt and did the tricky push and slide, the only way to move the loose floorboard. The record was still there. I realized I'd been afraid he would have found it and started another fire. I set it by the door and looked at the other treasures in hiding. A glass piggy bank full of pennies. A doll my father had called ugly and threatened to throw away. A journal I'd written two entries in and then stopped, lacking the language to express the things I was feeling. And then three paperbacks, 
that had expressed them too well. Paperbacks I had slipped into the waistband of my skirt and smuggled past the bookstore register, heart pounding. I picked up the top one. The title was Private Rooms, and the blurb on the cover asked, What turn in the road sends normal women down the twisted paths of lesbian lust? I turned to show the book to Mercy and saw my father standing in the doorway. Mercy was folding my underwear, her back to the door. I dropped the book, and at the sound, she looked up at my face and then spun to see him. He was still a big man, but the hard muscle that had defined him was beginning to soften, and his stomach bulged a little against his shirt. The tight buzz cut was iron gray now. I'd known these things, known he was getting old, but seeing him now, with mercy there, was like seeing him for the first time. He didn't look at me or mercy. He looked at the record. Yes, I missed one, he said. Somebody who didn't know him might think he sounded mild, thoughtful. It's mine, I said. I picked up the record and stood, my back to the wall. Stevie gave it to me. It wasn't his to give, my father said. Everything he had became mine when he died. If I want that record, you'll damn well give it to me. I won't. It's mine. I was breathing hard, but I made myself think of Mercy and of Stevie. I'm leaving for good. He shook his head and for the first time looked at Mercy. Who the hell are you? My name's Mercy, she said. She sounded calm, resolved. I'm in love with your daughter. For a second, I forgot to breathe again. My father's face twisted. Don't be disgusting. You're not going to bring your sickness into my family. We're just here for a few of Lila's things. Then we'll be leaving. You will be, not her. He looked back at me. Give me that record. I put it behind my back. No. You think I can't take it? I'm not that old yet. He took a step forward. Immediately, Mercy glided between us. She held up her left hand in a stop gesture, and with the right hand pulled her switchblade from her jacket pocket and flicked it open. He stopped, staring at the knife, and then her. I don't want to hurt you, Mercy said, but we are leaving, and we are taking the record. I find myself back in that moment, all the time, in my dreams, the three of us, frozen in place, all of us waiting to see what would happen. After a second, I stepped away from the wall and stood right behind Mercy, putting my hand on her hip to let her know I was there. My father watched me do that, looked at my hand, then turned his back and walked out of the room. Beneath my hand, I felt the tension in Mercy marginally ease. Hurry, she said, before he comes back. I went to the bed and put the record in the suitcase and closed it. She hadn't gotten to all the clothes, but I didn't care. 
I wanted out of this room, out of this house. I took her hand. Let's go, I said. We walked down the hall. Maybe everything would have been all right if we'd gone into the garage and left by the back way. But we went the way we'd come, into the living room, and my father was sitting in the chair he always sat in, and in his hand was a gun. He lifted it and pointed it at us. Sit on the couch, he said, right now. Mercy hesitated, just a beat, and he pulled the trigger. There was the loudest bang I'd ever heard, and I swear I heard the bullet pass through the space between our heads. We both jumped. Couch, he said again. We moved to the couch and sat. I put the suitcase between my feet. Don't do this, I said. Where did you even get a gun? I'll let you know when you can talk, he said. Toss the knife on the table, here in front of me. Mercy tossed the knife gently. It came to rest on the coffee table a foot and a half in front of my father. I saw he was sweating. Did you know that they're less likely to take only children? He said. Mercy and I looked at each other, confused. The draft, he said. They'll try not to take an only child. He looked at me. First, you took my wife, he said. She died trying to bring you into the world. Then you took my son. If he'd stayed an only child, I'd still have him. I could hear Mercy breathing. I wanted to take her hand, but I was afraid. I would die before I let him hurt her. What terrified me was, I was sure, entirely sure, she was thinking the same thing. You took everything, he said. And now you're going to, what, shame me? Take my good name, too? Make sure everyone knows I raised a pervert? Dad, I said, don't call me that. Just let us go, Mercy said. We'll never come back. Nobody will know. I'll know, he said. We love each other, I said. Oh, I can see that, he said, his lips twisting. If you call that love. Yes, Mercy said. We do. He shook his head. You took everything from me, he said again. So now I'm going to take everything from you. I pulled my feet back and leaned forward, preparing to jump at him, to put my body between the gun and Mercy. But instead of lifting the gun, he picked up the phone on the little side table by his chair. Working left-handed, he dialed zero. Operator, he said, give me the police. This is an emergency. Now he did lift the gun, pointing it at us. Police, he said, his voice rushed, panicky. My name is Tony Benson. I live at 435 Sycamore. I just came home and found a woman here with my daughter. Her name is Mercy, and she's robbing the place. She has a knife, a switchblade. Yes, she is threatening me. Listen, 
I think she's brainwashed my daughter. She's some kind of sick pervert, and my daughter says they're in love. But I think this mercy woman has her all turned around. She's a good girl. She's not like that. Please, come. I think this mercy wants to hurt me. I've got a gun, and I fired a shot to scare her. But I only had the one bullet. Please, come fast. I think she's going to... He broke off and dropped the phone to the floor. For the first time, I saw he had a handkerchief. He leaned forward with it and grabbed Mercy's knife. She understood a second before I did and jumped for him. Too late. Looking at me, smiling for the first time I could remember, he brought the knife up and cut his own throat. I told my story again and again, to everyone, even when I knew they weren't listening. I told them Mercy had tried to save him, that she was covered in his blood because she'd tried to hold it in him with her bare hands. I told them he had been lying. We weren't robbing the place. We didn't threaten him. None of it mattered. His call to the police had been recorded, and as soon as the jury heard brainwashed, it was all over. The prosecutor was happy to remind them of the women who'd sat outside the courthouse during Charlie Manson's trial, proclaiming their love, making up alibis, still willing to kill for him. Now, our little town had its very own lesbian Manson, and a martyred father who had tried to save his little girl. Every cop and reporter in town preferred that story. So did the jury. The one saving grace turned out to be the gun. Because my father had it, the lawyer appointed to Mercy's case argued there was an element of self-defense and got murder reduced to manslaughter. With good behavior, Mercy will be out in June of 1983. Five years down, six more years to wait. I visit every week. The guards have gotten used to me. They let us hold hands across the table. At first, Mercy told me not to wait for her, that I was throwing my life away. Now she holds my hand, and we count the remaining days together. I sold the house and everything in it. I still have Stevie's record. I live in a tiny apartment, work at the record store, and save every penny, except for what it takes to keep Mercy's bug running. In my spare time... I go to the library and read up on possible places to live in Arizona and the economics of running an independent bookstore. One of the things everyone loves about Oh Pretty Woman is the irresistible opening guitar riff, a stuttering, immediately repeated rendition of the opening notes of the progression that drives the rest of the record. Record store legend says it sounds like a mistake, because it was, the guitarist not quite getting the full riff right the first time through. Orbison decided to keep it, and that gleeful little false start became the key to the record. That's how I think of the week Mercy and I had together. A little false start before the real music begins. I'll be there in 1983, with the bug fully gassed and ready for the road a route to Arizona marked out in that same old atlas. The door will open, and there she'll be, 
a few lines at the corners of her eyes, a touch of gray in the pompadour. But that same gliding step that every guard will turn to look at. I'll hold out my arms, and my mercy will come walking back to me. I like the idea of putting that twist on it, and fortunately the story was accepted, and I've, it's a it's a great collection of stories. I, I really love these uh, anthologies. Uh, Untreed Reads is one publisher. There's uh, Down and Out. There's Wildside Press. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of these independent publishers putting out anthologies of really inventive, uh, original crime fiction. And I keep a running list of upcoming deadlines for projects like that. Uh, anthologies or, you know, special issues of magazines. Because I like the little seed that it gives you. You can find all of Joe Walker's short stories through his website. I'll put it in the show notes, as well as a link to purchase the Peace, Love, and Crime anthology from Untreed Reads. I'll put it in the show notes and on the Desideratum podcast website. Thanks for listening. <laughs>